Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Well, welcome today to Stand By My Servants, Episode 3. I'm so grateful for the opportunity uh, to talk about our prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. And there's so many things that could be said, and I look forward to sharing all the information that I've gathered over the years. You know, I had a chance several years ago to write a chapter in a book. The book was called Presence of the Church, and the chapter was on President uh, Russell M. Nelson, and I was able to team up with a couple colleagues on that, but also with members of the Nelson family, particularly some of the daughters in the Nelson family, and what a wonderful experience that was. I think I may share more about that in a little while, but uh, that experience really made President Russell M. Nelson a hero to me in many ways. So a couple of things I want to, there's there's a lot of ways we could start today, but there's one that I'd like to share, and it's just a reminder that the Lord is in charge of when our prophets become prophets, when they pass away. It's the Lord's timing. A group of actuaries years ago, not years ago, it was about 2015, 2016, but they got together and they tried to determine when each uh, member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles would pass away. The prediction was that Russell M. Nelson would die in 2018. Well, here we are in 2024, 23, heading into 2024. This September, so September of 2023, President Nelson will be 99 years old, one of the most one of the oldest living apostles and or prophets in the history of the church. The oldest living prophet, for sure. But in one more year, in September of 2024, President Nelson will be at 100 years old. I think that is remarkable. It's incredible that the Lord has preserved President Nelson's life at this time for a very specific reason or I should say many, many very specific reasons. So this propels me into another idea for a minute here, and that's that many of our prophets and apostles have had what I call close brushes with death, and it's very obvious that the Lord is in charge and that he's preserved their lives. I'd like to share several of those with you just at the outset to help us understand in such a clear way that the Lord has had his hand on President Nelson for a long, long time. He's had many experiences in his life that have brought him very close to death's door. In fact, on one occasion, President Nelson was flying in a small airplane that was traveling between Salt Lake City and St. George, Utah. During the flight, one of the engines exploded and caught on fire. Imagine how traumatic that would be for any of us to be on a plane like that. President Nelson recounted that the propeller I'm quoting from him now. The propeller of the flaming engine was starkly stilled. As we plummeted in a spiral, steep spiral dive towards the earth, I expected to die. 
Some of the passengers screamed in hysterical panic. Miraculously, the precipitous dive extinguished the flames. And then by starting up the other engine, the pilot was able to stabilize the plane and bring us down safely. Now, President Nelson continues, Throughout that ordeal, though I felt sudden death was coming, my paramount feeling was that I was not afraid to die. I remember a sense of returning home to meet my ancestors for who I had done temple work. And I remember my deep sense of gratitude that my sweetheart and I had been sealed eternally to each other and to our children born and reared in the covenant. I realized that our marriage in the temple was our most important accomplishment. Honors bestowed upon me by men could not begin to approach the inner peace provided by the sealings performed in the house of the Lord. Now, some of you may may be aware that that there was a Mormon message a few years ago that you could look up that also reported the same story, just from a little bit different angle. One of the things that that story contributes is this idea that as President Nelson knew that he was plummeting to his death, that he was totally calm. He said, even though I knew I was going to my, down to my death, I was ready to meet my maker. But I thought through that experience, if you've got faith, you can handle difficulties, knowing with an eternal perspective that all will be well. Faith certainly has been a dominant force in the life of President Nelson. Here's another experience that I would love to just share with you because it's so powerful and profound. In fact, when I'm done sharing this, you may have the same question that I have, and that's like, why are we not talking about this more? This is one of the most miraculous happenings in the history of the church, especially in our modern era. It's quite incredible. So President Nelson wrote this on one occasion. The Lord made a promise to those fully engaged in his service. He said, I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts and my angels round about you to bear you up. Then President Nelson said this, My wife Wendy and I are the beneficiaries of that promise. On one occasion, we were attacked by armed men with malicious intent. They, They announced their purpose to kidnap her and to kill me. After they maliciously molested us in those evil objectives, they became totally foiled. A gun to my head failed to fire, and my wife was suddenly released from their hideous grasp. Then they disappeared as quickly as they had appeared. We were mercifully rescued from potential disaster. We knew we were protected by angels round about us. Yes, the Lord's precious promise had been invoked in our behalf. Now, Sister Nelson provided more detail in another account. She explained that there were four armed men who broke into the mission home in Africa. Blair and Cindy Packard, presidents of the Mozambique Mapatu Mission, Elder William and Sister Shanna Parmley of the Africa Southeast Area Presidency. An elder and Sister Nelson at the time were dining together when the assault occurred. During the attack, Sister Packard suffered a broken arm, while others in the group, including President Sister Nelson, suffered cuts and bruises. The Nelsons and the Packards were not left to fight these intruders alone. In fact, Wendy reported that just before the intruders walked in, an intense and beautiful peace came upon me. As President Nelson recounted, the robbers disappeared as quickly as they had appeared. True to form, President Nelson sent a message home to his family instructing them not to worry. 
In fact, the Nelsons continued their assignment in Africa until their work was completed. Now, how many of us who would go through a traumatic experience like that, and if we were on church business, so to speak, or a mission of some kind or whatever, would basically after that say, okay, check please, I'm good, I'm done, I'm ready, I'm going home right now. But true to form, the Nelsons continue to stay in Africa and carry out their mission there. But back to the experience just for a minute, to put a loaded gun to an apostle's head and to pull the trigger and nothing happens. And then to, for all those uh, people in that party, to escape that experience without any real traumatic injuries or death is once again one of the great miracles of our day. Well, we can let all that be the backdrop of now talking about a miraculous life of President Nelson. Let me give you some history here. President Nelson was born in Salt Lake City on the 9th of September, 1924, to Marion C. and Edna Anderson Nelson. Marion C. Nelson, Russell M. Nelson, Russell Marion Nelson carries the name of his dad. One of the things he talked about is that he grew up in a home where there was a lot of love and a lot of compliments and praise. His parents, though, were not active members of the church. They did not attend church, in fact, at all until later in life. In fact, it wasn't until 1977, at the age of 80, that Marian Nelson was ordained an elder. Now, that was February. In March of 1977, Marion and Edna were, were sealed in the Provo Temple. And so for the bulk of President Nelson's life, his parents were not active in the church. But I love how he des- described his home as a home that was full of music, a home where their mother sang to them, a home where love prevailed. He, President Nelson wrote, completely absent were expressions of anger, criticism, and denigration of others. Now, I will tell you from my own research that despite the fact that President Nelson's parents weren't active in the church, he and his family were very close to who they called Nana and Popsy. Nana and Popsy were great, incredible, wonderful grandparents to these 10 Nelson children. And President Nelson remained close to them uh, with his children throughout their lives. Now, President Nelson Russell had an inquisitive mind. He skipped fifth grade, in fact, going right from fourth grade to sixth. He never missed a single day of school. He would skip Sunday school, though. In fact, every Sunday, he would play football in Harvard Park um, and uh, they would kind of miss, you know, they would miss a little bit of church there, as I described, a little bit of Sunday school. These boys would then tuck in their shirt, straighten their hair, walk home as if they'd been at Sunday school. That's in Spencer uh, Condy's book that I'll refer to a lot, Russell M. Nelson, Father, Surgeon, Apostle, a wonderful book, recommend it to everyone. Now, it's interesting as we tell that story, I wonder if President Nelson's parents really cared much that he was missing church since they weren't at church themselves, but... He was the valedictorian at East High School. Remember, he's going to graduate a year earlier than most at the age of 17 because he misses that that, uh, year of school. Because of an avid home teacher, Jonas Reiser, President Nelson was baptized at age 16 along with some other of his siblings in 1940. Some 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 of you may remember the name of Sterling W. Sill. 
That was uh, Russell's bishop when he was a young man. Uh, He ordained Russell a priest in 1941 at the age of 17. He was ordained an elder on April the 30th, 1944 by his bishop, Bishop uh, Bambro. President Nelson was noted for his perfect pitch. He sang in choirs in high school and in college. He performed in musicals, sang in prize-winning quartets. Some of you are familiar with the story that he's told that uh, finding alcohol in the basement, his father's alcohol in the basement, and breaking the bottles and pouring those contents down the drain. President Nelson began working at the age of 10 and, and has worked ever since. He was an errand boy for his father, who had become president of an advertising agency in Salt Lake, never without a job after that. He saved enough money as an errand boy, gave his mother a gift on her birthday, uh, with a note that said, thanks for having me. Uh, later gets a job as a bank teller, a bank messenger at Tracy Loan and Trust Company. He works part-time as a fo- at a photo studio. By the way, President Nelson, one of his hobbies, one of his great joys is taking pictures. He loves to do that. And when he's away on church business, his family will receive an assortment of photos from him. If he attends a a grandchild or now great-grandchild's baptism service, wedding, whatever the event is, President Nelson is the one taking those pictures. He also worked as a mail sorter for the U.S. Post Office. Every one of those jobs I just mentioned before he even graduated from high school. What, What are one of the great common ingredients for apostles and prophets? They were all hard, hard workers. He also played the piano, was on the debate team in high school. He was the student body president and vice president at Roosevelt Junior High School. He was the star of the school play Penrod and Sam. He was a member of the the Glee Club. I told you about photography a minute ago. He actually had his own dark room in his house where he could develop uh, photos. At East High School, he was uh, in the a cappella choir. He sang, like we mentioned earlier, with that perfect pitch. He, He sang in two operas. He was on the C team in football as a freshman. At that time, he stood 5 feet 4 inches and weighed about 120 pounds, but by his junior year, he had grown to 6 feet tall and 172 pounds. Tried out for the A team and made it, but even President Nelson uh, tells us that, but you know what, I, I really didn't play a whole lot because I didn't want to hurt my hands. He said, somehow I knew that those hands would be really important later in my life as a surgeon, and so anyway. All right, now, President Nelson once again graduates from high school at the age of, at the age of 17 and goes right into the University of Utah. And one of, the, one of the interesting experiences that happens in his life early on is some of his, some of his friends encourage him to try out for a play. It's the musical production called Hayfoot Strawfoot. And uh, President Nelson says in, the, in a church news article years ago that I didn't want to do that. I was resistant to doing it. I was much more concerned about passing biology than being in some play. But now to quote from his own words here, he said, "When it says, sorry, that when he arrived at the first rehearsal with his nose buried in a book, he heard the soprano voice of a dark-haired young woman on the stage. He stopped suddenly and asked the director, who's that beautiful girl singing up there? That's Danzel White. She's the one you'll be performing with, was the reply. 
President Nelson vividly remembers the feeling that came over him. I thought she was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen and sensed that she was the one that I would marry. Well, he did marry her. They did date for some time. Russell and Dansel had a courtship that was quite long. They dated uh, for three or four years before they got married. They were married in the Salt Lake Temple in August of 1945. The relationship between Russell and Dansel was just incredible. What a wonderful partnership. What a wonderful team. An incredible relationship where their strengths flowed into each other. It's kind of interesting. President Nelson shared this experience in the church news years ago. But, you know, he's going to graduate as a full-fledged doctor. They must have done things differently in those days where you could go as an undergraduate student and become a doctor. And so he's going to graduate from the University of Utah at the age of 22 as a full-fledged medical doctor. But much of their early life together, Russell and Dansel, with their children that came to them, was spent with financial challenge, as you can imagine. He wrote, once we were in debt about $43 above our resources. And to meet the debt, I picked Dansel up after school, took her to LDS Hospital, where we each sold a pint of blood for $25. Then, Russell says, I took her to work at the music store where she worked. When Dansel's mother found out that I was having Dansel work two jobs and then bleeding her in between, I got the general feeling that she didn't think her daughter had much of a husband. We know that President Nelson was an outstanding, wonderful husband, but that that speaks to their financial difficulties for sure. So the next move for them after they graduate from the University of Utah, they're going to move to Minneapolis, where President Nelson is now going to spend the next eight years of his life getting a PhD. When you think that the first 12 or more years of their lives were spent in school, it's amazing to think about. I love the tributes that children have given to Sister Nelson. In fact, once one of the Nelson daughters observed that when someone asked their mother how she dealt with all the stress and rearing a large family, Dansel just calmly replied, what stress? How about this? President Nelson shared this experience. He says, I pay tribute to Sister Nelson, this magnificent wife and mother who has always been supportive. When people have asked her how she managed with 10 children with so little time available from her husband, she has responded with a twinkle in her eye, saying that when I married him, I didn't expect much, so I've never been disappointed. Oh boy, that's a good one for all of us, right? To maybe maybe lower uh, some of our high expectations we have going into marriage. But I, I know that Sister Nelson always believed that her husband, Russell, was quite outstanding. So for the next eight years, it's going to be a really interesting turn of events because the Nelsons are going to be in Minneapolis, He's going to be uh, working at the University of Minnesota hospitals. And his work there, his contribution there, became landmark. It became foundational, for, uh, especially for the field of open-heart surgery. So just keep this in mind. So here's President Nelson in the mid-1940s, uh, maybe the late 1940s now, in, in Minneapolis. And up till that time in world history, if you had a bad heart, you just died. I mean, that's just what happened. If you 
if you had heart trouble of any kind, there wasn't really much they could do for you for a couple reasons. One, there was the belief that President Nelson has shared with us that if you touched a beating heart, that it would stop, which they later learned that wasn't true. But the second quandary, which was just as significant in my mind, was how do you keep a person alive? How do you keep the blood flowing? How do you keep their lungs going and circulation with with surgery, right? I mean, how do you perform a surgery on the heart? And so what President Nelson's team did, it was a five-year research grant, but they developed a machine that would basically become the heart and lung machine. And what it did is it kept patients alive so that surgery could be performed on the heart. And once again, landmark. I mean, you just, you just couldn't do open heart surgery until that time. That machine they used in 1951 for the very first time to perform open heart surgery on a human. They had done it on a few animals before, before that. What a lot of people also may not know is that when President Nelson came to the University of Utah, uh, sorry, as a, as a professor slash and then had his own practice, he built the first heart-lung machine so that he could perform the first open-heart surgery in Utah. Now, there were quite a few experiences that occurred while they were in Minnesota. So it wasn't like they were in Minnesota for eight years straight. There was several major things that happened. For one, uh, President Nelson was went into the Army. Uh, when you think of the old show MASH, that's exactly what it was. President Nelson went to Korea. He was uh, part of a, a mobile team, a mobile army of uh, surgeons that traveled around the countryside and uh, performing medical procedures on military personnel. He was there from 1951 to 1953. So once again, while at the University of Minnesota, then there's a little stint in Washington, D.C., where President Nelson uh, secures an internship at the Walter Reed Army Hospital. While they live in Washington, D.C., uh, Russell is called into the bishopric at the age of 27 and serves for the first time as a counselor in a bishopric. And then after that, they travel to Boston, where President Nelson uh, performs or secures an internship there at uh, the Boston General Hospital and uh, has some really interesting experiences, especially in his church service. One that I think is worth repeating right now is the great experience with Wilbur Cox. This experience was shared in general conference in the April 2018 conference, ministering with the power and authority of God. And I'll just read President Nelson. Here we go. An, ex an experience I had more than 60 years ago in Boston taught me how powerful the privilege of ministering one-on-one -on -one can be. I was then a resident surgeon at the Mass General Hospital, on duty every day and every other night and every other weekend. I had limited time for my wife and our four children and, a, and church activity. Nonetheless, our branch president assigned me to visit the home of Wilbur and Lenora Cox with the hope that Brother Cox might come back into activity in the church. He and Lenora had been sealed in the temple, yet Wilbur had not participated for many years. My companion and I went to their home, and as we entered, Sister Cox welcomed us warmly. But Brother Cox abruptly walked into another room and closed the door. I went to the closed door and knocked. And by the way, this is me inserting this, but what, 
What courage of President Nelson. And after a moment, I heard a muffled, Come in. I opened the door to find Brother Cox sitting beside an array of amateur radio equipment. In that small room, he lit up a cigar. Clearly, my visit was not all that welcome. I gazed about the room with wonderment and said, Brother Cox, I've always wanted to learn more about an amateur radio. Would you be willing to teach me about it? I'm sorry, I can't stay any longer tonight, but I'd love to come back another time. He hesitated for a moment and then said yes. Now, time out right there for a minute, but what a master minister in President Nelson to read the situation, to know that this man is not going to want President Nelson to stay long, but also to have an excuse to come back. President Nelson plants that seed, but also to find, okay, what is Brother Cox interested in? And obviously he's interested in amateur radio work. So let's, you know, let's build on that. Well, anyway, after President Nelson said, I can't stay any longer tonight. Could I come back another time? Brother Cox hesitated for a moment and then said, yes. And that was the beginning of what became a wonderful friendship. I returned and he taught me. I began to love and respect him. Through our subsequent visits, the greatness of this man emerged. We became very good friends, as did our dear eternal companions. Then with the passage of time, our family moved away and local leaders continued to nurture the Cox family. Eight years after that first visit, the Boston Stake was created. And can you guess who, who its first stake president was? Yes, it was Brother Cox, and during subsequent years, he also served as a mission president and as a temple president. Now, sometimes the church is like one big Seinfeld episode, and what I mean by that is everything's connected. So you have probably heard President Irene say, or quote, well, I'll just tell the the story. He says, many years ago, I was a counselor to a district president in the eastern United States, and more than once, as we were driving to our little branches, he said to me, Hal... When you meet someone, treat them as if they were in serious trouble, and you will be right more than half of the time. Now, when President Irene first shared that story, it was 2004, and he added by saying, you know, I thought that this man was quite pessimistic to say that. Now, here is President Irene in 2018 in a talk called Try, 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 saying not only was he right, but I've learned over the years that he was too low in his estimate. Um, it's, it's amazing how much we can learn with time and experience, right? But anyway, that was Wilbur Cox. That was Wilbur Cox, that district president that taught President Irene that great lesson. And here was President Nelson, very instrumental in bringing Brother Cox back into full activity in the church. And that is one of the things that happens while they're in Boston. All right, now let's go back to Minneapolis. President Nelson concludes his internship there. And uh, he's going to move to Utah. Now, he has offers to go to different places. The only place he didn't have an offer, but where they wanted to go, was back to Salt Lake. And so President Nelson essentially and Dance will travel back to Salt Lake, you know, bang on a few doors, so to speak, and uh, solicit their services. And he's able to secure a position at the University of Utah in their medical school, but also begins a private practice. And in 1955... After creating that heart and lung machine, he becomes the first surgeon in the state of Utah to perform open heart surgery. Now, I thought it would be fun to take a little deviation here and just talk about some of the different callings in the church that President Nelson had. First, in Minneapolis, he was the Sunday school president 
uh, or as we may have called it in that day, the Sunday school superintendent. In Washington, D.C., as I mentioned, he was the second counselor in the bishopric. He was 27 years of age. When they moved to Boston, uh, he was called to be the secretary of an organization called the Adult Ironic Priesthood. So this sounds like an organization that was tailored to focusing on those men who were Aaronic priesthood holders but had not been ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood yet, probably were not real active in the church, and President Nelson was trying to track those people down, and I'm sure Wilbur Cox was part of that. When they moved to Salt Lake, and they live in the Bonneville Stake, they actually live in the area, in fact, even in the same home for a while that President Nelson grew up in, uh, and in the ward that he grew up in. He's called to be the priest quorum advisor, and in that priest quorum, there are 50-plus priests. It's the largest priest quorum in the church. How cool would that be, right? Uh, and then he's called to be the first assistant in the Bonneville Stake Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association. So let's translate that. He's called to be the first counselor in the Stake Young Men's Presidency, is what we would say today. Another interesting thing about President Nelson, for a long time, he served as a Temple Square missionary, which meant one Thursday for an hour or two every week from the very beginning of his time um, in Salt Lake City. He would go to Temple Square and visit with people who were not of our faith and teach them the gospel, which I thought. And he managed that missionary calling with other callings he had at the same time that he held simultaneously becomes the second counselor in the bishopric in their ward in, in Salt Lake for a time. He becomes a member of the high council. Uh, then he becomes the stake president of the Bonneville Stake. And then the church's general Sunday school president, then a regional representative, then an apostle, and then, of course, now the president of, of the church. Now let me take a little deviation here and talk just about failure for a minute. I love this quote from Dennis Waitley that failure should be our teacher, not our undertaker. Failure is delay, not defeat. It is a temporary detour, not a dead end. Failure is something we can avoid only by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. Now here's another one from Napoleon Hill. Every adversity, every failure, every heartache carries with it the seed of an equal or greater benefit. And then here's John Green. What is the point of being alive if you don't at least try to do something remarkable? And by the way, we may fail, and we may fail a lot. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. That's Winston Churchill. Well, to make a long story short, President Nelson did not have incredible success at first, nor did anyone in the field of open heart surgery. They were pioneers chartering new territory. And you may remember some of President Nelson's experiences that he has shared very publicly in general conference about patients that he operated on that just didn't make it, especially some young children. And he talks about how devastating that was. He even shared the experience in general conference of cry, of coming home and crying, of sobbing, because he was just so devastated and he felt so horrible for these families. They had counted on him to save their children and he wasn't able to do it. But I love this part of that story 
when he's visiting with, he stays up all night, he's crying, Dancil's with him, she's giving him comfort. And then when morning came, Dancil finally said, isn't it better to keep trying than to quit now and require others to go through the same grief of learning of what you already know? I listened to her counsel. I returned to the laboratory to work a little harder, to learn a little more, and to strive further. Dancil really, really was the guiding star and the inspiration in President Nelson's life. Now, let me tell you a little bit about President Nelson's call to be the stake president of the Bonneville Stake. First of all, he was on the High Council, which was wonderful. There were some who anticipated that President Nelson would be the new stake president. Of course, he did not want to believe that. President Spencer W. Kimball, then Elder Spencer W. Kimball, and LeGrand Richards were the two visiting authorities of the Bonneville Stake in 1964 when that stake was to be re reorganized. Now, another key point to identify. In that day and in that time period, doctors usually were not called to serve as bishops or stake presidents or anything that, that took a lot of time. There was just this belief that you, you would be too busy to serve if you had such a, an incredible, busy profession. And so, for the most part, President Nelson, at least to my knowledge, was the first doctor in the church called to be a stake president. And it was a, and it was a wonderful, incredible experience, as, as you would know. And in fact, President Kimball, and I need to call him Elder Kimball here, but when he set apart President Nelson, he blessed him that the quality of his work as a surgeon would increase so that he could have the time to serve as stake president without jeopardizing his patients. Now that was in 1964. In 1972, President Kimball becomes one of President Nelson's most famous open heart patients. And we'll, we'll share that story a little bit later as well. Now remember, that was in 1964. In 1965, towards the end of 65, President Nelson has only been the stake president for a year, and these offers start to come from the University of Chicago. In fact, I'm gonna to read to you from President Nelson's autobiography. We should make that known to you. It's called From Heart to Heart. If you went on Amazon today, to, if you think, I'm gonna buy that, that would be so great to have. There were only about 300 copies of that autobiography published. And so uh, when President Nelson became the president of the church, that book went in value from being a book that cost, you know, a hundred or a couple hundred dollars to, I think, $2,400 or $2,500 today on Amazon. But it's a great book with some incredible uh, stories and experiences shared that President Nelson uh, talked about. But one of them was on November the 12th, 1965. In fact, I recognize that as my wife's birthday just now. Okay, they held conferences with Elder Spencer W. Kimball and Truman G. Madsen regarding the wisdom of accepting the offer from the University of Chicago. Now, let me read that better. But they were at a conference somewhere. I don't remember where. It doesn't say. But when President Kimball or Elder Kimball and Truman G. Madsen heard about the University of Chicago offer, to President Nelson, they just really encouraged him that he should take it. And once again, that's interesting because Elder Kimball was the one who had just called him a year earlier, earlier, obviously through the Lord, but to be the, the president of the Bonneville Stake. That was on November the 12th. On November the 17th, 
I'll just quote from heart to heart. Danzel and I attended meetings at the Western Surgical Association in Omaha, Nebraska, following which we went to Chicago, where on November the 20th, we were given such a warm and gracious reception by officials from the University of Chicago who were interested in my becoming a professor of surgery there. On November the 21st, while in Chicago, we met Dallin and June Oaks for the first time. That turned out to be the beginning of a long and splendid friendship. Now, President Nelson is writing this probably in the 1970s or somewhere in there. And who knew, right, that he and Dallin A. Jokes would end up not only serving in the Quorum of the Twelve together for a really long time, but then in the First Presidency together. And by the way, the Yokes were very persuasive, and they really convinced the Nelsons, Chicago is a great place to be, you ought to come, and the Nelsons actually are going to put a put a, a little earnest money down on a home while they're there. On November 22nd, Dean Jacobson, the dean of the school, or the college, the reason we want you to come is because we know you are a good Mormon and we need the influence that you could bring to our school. So that's the type of dialogue that's going on. And that was all in November. In December, President Nelson wrote, I received a firm offer from the University of Chicago that included a salary of $60,000 a year. Now, once again, in today's dollars, I know many of you are like, okay, that's nothing. Uh, but the, the equivalent of that today would be $555,000, so over half a million in 2023 money. And by the, time, by the way, at the time, he was making 30000 at the University of Utah, so this is going to double the salary. But in addition to the salary, they would pay for the college education of each of our nine children, four years at the college of their choosing when the time came. We were overwhelmed by this offer and, of course, were very much inclined to accept it. The immediate possibility of being able to finance the education of all of our children seemed worth it, President Nelson said. So that was on December the 13th when the offer came. On December the 14th, President Nelson and Dansel have a meeting with the prophet David O. McKay. Let me share with you the Spencer J. Condy version of this story from his book on President Nelson's life. But as I remember the backstory here, President McKay's secretary at the time was also a member of the Bonneville Stake High Council. And President Nelson, having been just, just a stake president for a year, felt it may be very important for him to talk to the president of the church to receive his counsel on what he should do with his life. He did not want to leave his post early, so to speak. And and by the way, wouldn't it be nice for all of us if whenever we had a challenge or a problem or a big decision to make, let's just go talk to the prophet, right? Anyway, so President McKay invited Russell and Danzel into his study, and there they reviewed the nature of the offer extended by the University of Chicago. After hearing their story, President McKay closed his eyes, leaned his head back, and pondered the matter for a while. And then he asked, And what would you want to do this for? To get fame? You're already famous. I know who you are. President McKay then laughed and said, How many children do you have? The Nelsons replied, Nine daughters. Where is it that you live in Salt Lake? President McKay asked. Russell told him they lived on Normandy Circle, where they had moved in the fall of 1963. Their home was just opposite the canyon where President McKay's son Llewellyn lived. Then Russell recalled President McKay laid his head back on his chair, closed his eyes, 
and commune with the Lord and supplicate in an answer that would be a guide for us. Actually, he was non-responsive to us for such a long time that I began to wonder if he was still alive. But then, with that keen, sharp intellect and piercing eye, he looked at me directly and said, Brother Nelson, if I were you, I wouldn't be in a hurry to change neighborhoods. It doesn't feel good to me. No, Brother Nelson, your place is here in Salt Lake City. People will come to you from all over the world because you're here. I don't think you, sh- you should go to Chicago. And then Russell recalled that was it. It was a meeting that lasted 75 minutes with President David O. McKay. The decision had been made. He called the officials in Chicago and informed them that he was declining their offer and remaining in Salt Lake City. Many of Russell's friends in academic surgery thought he had made a serious mistake, but his faith was secure. He and Dansel had been privileged to receive a prophet's counsel, and they were going to abide by it. You know, one of the things I love about this story, and other stories like it, is President Nelson has always done his best to align himself with prophets, seers and revelators. And when the prophet speaks, then President Nelson always listened, always paid attention, and would always try to follow, always would try to follow the words of a living prophet. And this is just one on one occasion where that happened. Let me share with you another experience in President Nelson's life that may not be known by many, and so I'd like to share this uh, with everyone here listening today. Now it's 1971, so he has served as stake president from 64 to 71, and Brigham Young University is going to call a new president to replace Ernest L. Wilkinson. And uh, he said on March the 17th, 1971, in his book Heart to Heart, or From Heart to Heart, that I was interviewed by elders Romney, Packer, and Hanks, regarding the presidency of Brigham Young University. Yes, President Nelson was one of the leading candidates to become the next president of BYU. That was on March the 17th. On March the 19th, I was interviewed by Harold B. Lee and President N. Eldon Tanner for more than two hours regarding the presidency of BYU. And uh, now what President Nelson wrote in his book, his, his, his autobiography in parentheses here, He said, fortunately for the church and for BYU, they subsequently appointed Dallin Oaks to that position. Now, there's a lot to this story, right? And uh, as as you know, many of you know, you know, President Oaks was called to be the president of BYU. He had been a BYU student, and maybe that swayed them in some way. But the other challenge was that if President Nelson had been called in 1971 to be the president of BYU, he would have had to discontinue his his medical practice at that point. And uh, luckily for many, he was not to, he was he did not have to do that. He was able to continue practicing. And then another interesting turn of events. Now this is just my own opinion, but I believe that in those interviews in March of 1971, members of the first presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, and others who were interviewing these men to be the president of BYU, as they interview Russell M. Nelson, they realize, oh my gosh, we've got a gem here. We've got an incredible leader here. We need to, we need to put him somewhere. This man is wonderful. And so on June the 4th, so this was all in March. Now on June the 4th, 
He said, I was called to the office of the First Presidency where I was told by President Harold B. Lee and President Eldon Tanner of their inspiration to call me as the general superintendent of the Sunday School of the Church. I was then interviewed and counseled by elders Richard L. Evans, Gordon B. Hinckley, Thomas S. Monson, and Boyd K. Packer. So here are a few key points just to bring up. First of all, once again, the intersection in 1971 of the lives of Dallin H. Oaks and Russell M. Nelson. These two men have just always, always, it seems like, have been together in some way. Second for me, as I understand this story, that when the First Presidency called in June to meet with President Nelson, and they wanted to meet with him in a week or something like that, he just said, no, I can't meet with you. And uh, when they asked him why, he said, well, I have a conference in Hawaii that I need to travel to. And so I, I just love that President Nelson was able to say, yeah, I can't do that. But also, then they retorted with, well, could you meet right now? And he said, sure. And so he's willing to meet with them immediately. So that's another key point for me is just, you know, these men have their lives and they have things that they have to do and they have obligations. But they're willing to make those sacrifices. Third, and maybe the, the most incredible key, is that President Nelson was willing to retire from his position as a surgeon at that point. He did not quite understand that being a member of the General Sunday School Presidency, you could still keep your full-time job. President Nelson, not knowing that, was willing to leave his medical practice but the First Presidency insisted. They said, no, no, no. You need to stay right where you are professionally. We need you to keep doing that. Now, here is my thought to this whole experience of being called to be the church's general Sunday school president and not being called to be the president of BYU. I went back in, in, in heart, from heart to heart and read that President Nelson had some major, major surgeries to perform after 1971 and i'm going to read you the list it's almost like a who's who list in the church for subsequent to that date he wrote it was my responsibility to operate on president spencer w kimball on a brother and sisters of president marion g romney a son-in-law of president in eldon tanner elder richard l evans elder boyd k packer elder paul h dunn elder milton r hunter elder robert l simpson several wives of the brethren, many mission presidents, and other people whose contributions to the development of the kingdom of God upon the earth have been so vital. I also added to my own list of and hundreds of grandmothers and grandfathers, mothers and dads, aunts and uncles. Had President Nelson retired in 1971, there would have been a long list of people who would have missed out on his expertise in, in the field of open heart surgery and just surgery in general. And so that leads us to another experience. It is 1972. President, our elder Spencer W. Kimball was weary. He was the sickly apostle. You know, he was that apostle who was just not there at general conference for different reasons cancer heart problems uh tumors boils just <laughs> he just had all kinds of physical challenges and as his heart was failing in a meeting with the first presidency and with president nelson as a doctor 
President, El- President Kimball, or Elder Kimball, said, I am an old man and I am ready to die. It is well for a younger man to come into the quorum and to do the work I can no longer do. Then President Harold B. Lee rose and in a firm voice, and I imagine President Lee just saying this with a voice of thunder, standing up and almost pounding on the desk, although I'm sure he didn't do that, but I just visualized it that way. Spencer, you've been called. You are not to die. You are to do everything that you need to do to care for yourself and to continue to live. Then Elder Kimball said, then I will have the operation performed. At that point, Dr. Nelson's heart sank, for the weight of responsibility then seemed to transfer right to his shoulders. But on the eve of the operation, President Nelson, Dr. Nelson, receives a blessing under the hands of President Harold B. Lee and President N. Eldon Tanner, counselors in the First Presidency at the time, to the effect that the operation would be performed without error and that he need not fear. The operation was performed on April the 12th, 1972. It was flawless. Thousands of intricate manipulations performed without error, according to the blessing that he had received. Even more special to Dr. Nelson was an overpowering feeling that came upon him at the conclusion of the operation. He said that the Spirit told me that I had just operated on a man who would become the president of the church. Now, once again, we read that and go, okay, that sounds great. But what we don't realize or what some may not realize is, no, President Kimball, you know, in seniority, was behind Harold B. Lee. Harold B. Lee was younger. He was uh, healthy. And who would have ever believed that President Lee would die after a year and a half as the president of the church and that the weak and sickly Elder Kimball, Elder Spencer W. Kimball, would take his place? No one would have thought that at the time, but President Nelson came to know that. I love that from a very early age that Russell M. Nelson proved himself to the Lord that he would be one who would always be willing to do whatever the Lord asked him to do, that he would always be loyal to prophets, and that he would do what they invited him to do. And that made all the difference in his life. And I share that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.